God is good. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's great to be here with you guys. Uh, Good morning. Welcome. Uh, It's just a blessing to be able to gather together as a church family to worship the Lord, um, to yield ourselves now to His Word. At this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class. And for the rest of us, we will be continuing our march through the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we were not able to get in the last bit of chapter 13, so today we will be uh, wrapping up the last bit of chapter 13. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. Make your way to Luke chapter 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down, borrow one of the Bibles uh, underneath you. Uh, A number of the chairs around you have Bibles in them. Um, We do think it's important that you're able to just follow along in the Word as we go through it. Our text this morning is very short, only five verses. Um, So we may, and I do have that underlined and italicized, we may end a little early this morning, uh, but as I told first service, I make no promises or guarantees, all right? Uh, we did, in, well, I don't even want to give you your hopes. No, what we did first service is irrelevant, okay? Um, so I, I did consider the possibility of just jumping into chapter 14, but after reading ahead and, and seeing the overall flow of the text, I just felt like the Lord would have us just to tackle the remainder of chapter 13 this morning, and we'll leave chapter 14 for next week, Lord willing. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. And the title I've chosen for our study this morning is Scare Tactics and Sacred Truths. Scare Tactics and Sacred Truths. In our text, Jesus is going to encounter some Pharisees who come before him with a message. Now, the overall intent of this message is a bit difficult to understand, and we're going to look into reasons why this is the case. We will also look at how Jesus responded to the message of the Pharisees, and then he turns his attention towards the city and the people of Jerusalem, sharing an emotional lament over them and speaking a prophetic word regarding them. So let's go ahead. We'll dive into our text. We'll read it for ourselves. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and his word? Again, we are in Luke chapter 13. Our text this morning is going to be verses 31 through 35 and a message I've entitled Scare Tactics and Sacred Truths. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke writes the following in chapter 13, verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God just to lead us and guide us through it. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather together as a church family, as brothers and sisters, to seek you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that you've given to us your word, that we might know you, that we might know your heart, your uh, desires, your plans for us. And so, Lord, we do come this morning uh, just yielding ourselves 
to your plan, to your work uh, that you desire to do in and through us. And so, Lord, we know uh, and trust and believe that you uh, want to speak to us, that you want to uh, minister to us in this place. And so give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are open uh, to all that you would have for us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, recently in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been making his rounds through the region of Perea beyond the Jordan, along the east coast of the Jordan River. And as he has traveled from various villages, towns, and cities along the way, he has often stopped off at at synagogues as a traveling rabbi, and he has taught the multitudes that were gathered together. He has encountered various people during his stops along the way, those who were uh, demon-possessed, those who had physical ailments, even those who were suffering from physical ailments because of spiritual possession or and and or oppression, some mute, some that were uh, bent over, doubled over, and unable to stand up straight. Along with the multitudes were also a number of religious elites that he encountered. He interacted with rulers of synagogues that were bound up in legalism and man's tradition, and he engaged various Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers who tried to trap him and get him to do something that they may bring accusations against him and to get rid of him. The tension between Jesus and the religious elites was growing greater with each passing day. Back in chapter 11, if you've been with us uh, through our study of the book of Luke, uh, after sharing multiple woes against the Pharisees and lawyers, they banded together in their attacks against Jesus. Luke describes how they assailed him vehemently and cross-examined him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him, according to chapter 11, verses 53 and 54. And so, after this, Luke opens up chapter 12 uh, with Jesus warning his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he identified as hypocrisy. And really, that was the last we heard about the Pharisees. But in our text today, they are back. And they have a message to deliver to Jesus, a message of intrigue, one that was difficult for Jesus to take sincerely, knowing their hearts and their attitudes towards him as of late. And so take a look at our opening verse once again as we look to understand the message the Pharisees had for Jesus in verse 31. It says, On that very day some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. The beginning of verse 31 gives to us a time marker of sorts. The New King James Version reads, on that very day. But some of the other translations uh, show that it was a much more uh, soon after type of event. Okay, uh, Some of the translations read, at that very hour or just at that time. Well, what time was that? Okay, It was right after Jesus just finished answering the question about whether there would be a few who were saved. Jesus answered the question by exhorting the people to strive and make sure that they themselves entered into the narrow gate, the narrow door, for many will seek uh, to enter but will not be able to. Jesus went on to tell a parable of sorts about the kingdom of God that described how there were some who were left outside of a master's house and unable to enter. And in place of those who had been left out, Jesus went on to describe how others from all around would be welcomed in, those people from the north, south, east, and west. 
rest. This illustration was a very pointed warning to the Jews who assumed upon their position in the kingdom of God and thought themselves better than others, especially the Gentiles. It would seem that Jesus' teaching came to the ears of the Pharisees and it struck a nerve with them, for they came to Jesus right away in that very hour, okay, just at that time. And when they came to Jesus, they had a message for him. They said, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, on the surface, one could try and give the benefit of the doubt to the Pharisees and suggest that their motives were pure, but I highly doubt their motives were altruistic in nature. They weren't just looking out for Jesus' best interest here and trying to protect him from Herod. We know that the Pharisees have been plotting and scheming on ways to get rid of Jesus for some time now. We know that Jesus just shared a teaching that pointed to the possibility that the likes of the religious elite, like the Pharisees, would be out of the kingdom of God and that the Gentiles will be welcomed in. Such a teaching would be considered sacrilegious by the Pharisees. It's far more likely that these Pharisees have showed up on scene with a desire not to protect Jesus, but to get rid of Jesus. They don't like his teachings. They don't like the implications he's making about them. They want to shut him up. They want to get rid of him. He's going to end up causing too many problems for them, and they want him gone. Now, the verbs get out and depart that are written in the New King James Version, they are written in what's called the imperative mood, indicating to us that this was a command that they were giving to Jesus. This wasn't a polite request or suggestion. They were demanding that he get out of their town, out of their area. But instead of coming out and being honest about their intentions, they use Herod as a way to try and scare Jesus into leaving. This would protect their image amongst the multitude that have been following Jesus. They didn't have to come out and say that Jesus intimidated them or that he was threatening their hold and sway over the people. Instead, they simply used Herod as a means to try and scare Jesus away. Now, The Bible references a few different Herods throughout the New Testament, and I'd like to quickly just review them for our own sake, just so that we don't get them uh, mixed up uh, and we understand the context. First of all, there was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born, the one that was visited by by the wise men from the east. Herod the Great was paranoid about losing his position as king over the regions of Judea, and he executed anyone who threatened his position, even executing some of his own wives and children in fear that they were trying to lead some sort of revolt or rebellion, a coup. This is the Herod that ordered the death of all the male children in Bethlehem in its districts that were two years old and under when he discovered that the wise men had deceived him. Then there is Herod Antipas. Herod the Great died in the year 4 BC, and upon his death he divided his kingdom amongst some of his sons, one of which was Herod Antipas. Herod Archelaus, who uh, is only briefly mentioned uh, in the Bible once, uh, is a different son. He was left the throne in Judea, and he ruled over Samaria and some of the area to the south as well. But Herod Antipas, he was given the regions of Galilee and Perea to rule over. I have a map that shows this. If you can see it, hopefully you can tell. Um, The green shaded area was what Herod Archelaus ruled over upon his father's death while the red area was Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. 
the purple area to the northeast was actually given to another Herod, Herod Philip. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was named after this particular Herod. Now, Herod Archelaus didn't last too long before he was replaced by various governors sent out by Rome, eventually leading to one Pontius Pilate, who ruled over Judea. Now, but Herod Antipas, he lasted much longer as Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. History tells us that he led for about 45 years from his father's death in 4 BC until the year AD 39. Herod Antipas is the Herod that ruled during the earthly ministry of Jesus. He's the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded uh, at the request of his wife Herodias's daughter. Now, after Herod Antipas, we read later on in the book of Acts about Herod Agrippa, uh, or Herod Agrippa I. He became ruler in the year AD 39 over the Jews. He was eventually given the land that Antipas had ruled over, expanding his kingdom. Agrippa I is the Herod that's mentioned in connection with the killing of James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder. Um, uh, James was martyred and... uh, Herod Agrippa I saw that the Jews liked that, and so he went and tried, he imprisoned Peter uh, in hopes to, you know, win favor with the Jews. Uh, You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Then the other Herod that's mentioned in the scriptures is King Herod Agrippa II. Okay, this is the Herod that Paul dealt with at the end of his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. Herod Agrippa II is the one who heard Paul's case, declared that he would have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so the Herod the Pharisees are referring to in their message to the message to Jesus is Herod Antipas. Okay? He ruled over the regions of Galilee and Perea at this time. Jesus is in Perea. And so their claim that Herod wanted to kill Jesus is something that it could have been true, though it, it would be very difficult to piece that together based upon what we do know about Herod Antipas from Scripture. Okay, the scriptures tell us that Herod was perplexed uh, by what he had heard regarding Jesus and the things that he was able to do. His great confusion came as a result of some testimony that he heard uh, about how some thought of Jesus as John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, this would obviously concern Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas had beheaded John the Baptist. And so hearing of Jesus and what the people had to say about him definitely caused some confusion on Herod's part. There was some concern, all right? But later on, when Jesus was presented before Herod Antipas by Pontius Pilate, the scriptures say that Herod was exceedingly glad to see him because, not because he wanted to kill him, but because he had longed to see Jesus in hopes of seeing Jesus perform a miracle. Okay? If Herod really wanted to kill Jesus, he could have made that happen with ease when Jesus was presented before him. But Herod didn't do that. Okay? In fact, after examining him himself, he found that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. In fact, he sent him back to Pontius Pilate with that same report. You know, they mocked him, they ridiculed him, and, and sent him on back his way. From a scriptural standpoint, there isn't anything that we know of that would corroborate this claim of the Pharisees that Herod wanted to kill him. And this leads me to believe that this was nothing more than an attempt at a scare tactic to get Jesus to leave their town. 
I imagine these Pharisees were hoping that Jesus would flee in fear of what Herod may do to him, but such was not the case. Jesus was not afraid of Herod, and he wasn't afraid of the Pharisees. Jesus was confident that he had nothing to fear when it came to what mortal man could do to him. Just last chapter, in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, Jesus instructed his disciples, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. See, Jesus didn't fear man. And he directed his disciples and friends to follow in his example. You see, church family, we are not to fear man and what he may do to us. Proverbs 29 verse 25 states that the fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Psalm 118, verse 6 states, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What a glorious truth for us to behold this morning. The Lord is on our side. He is with us. We need not fear. No matter what comes our way, no matter how difficult, how challenging, how scary, we need not fear for God is with us. David, the sweet psalmist, writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As our great shepherd, the Lord may lead us through valleys. He may lead us through some dark moments, through challenging seasons, but we need not fear for he is with us. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, according to Paul's letter to Timothy. Remember this powerful truth, okay? The next time fear comes knocking and tries to get us to back down or to run and to flee, listen, church family, God is with us, okay? He is on our side and he has given us everything that we need to overcome the fear of man, the fear of evil, the fear that comes from this world. Remember the truth of what 1 John chapter 4 tells us that we are of God and we have overcome them because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We need not fear. Well, Let's see how Jesus responded to these scare tactics of the Pharisees. Take a look at verses 32 and 33 with me. It says, And he said to them, Go, tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus responded to the Pharisees, basically telling them to go tell Herod themselves that he was going to continue moving forward, doing the work the Father had prepared for him. To cast out demons, uh, setting people free from their spiritual bondage, to uh, perform cures, miraculously healing uh, people of physical ailments, touching them uh, upon all those who would come to him by faith, and to be perfected on the third day. Now, this is not trying to imply that he's just three days away from going to Jerusalem, dying on the cross, and doing all that stuff. The idea is that he is on a divine timeline. He's working. I've got something to do today, tomorrow. And, I, and then he says, on the third day, I will be perfected. Okay? Or I shall be perfected. 
Okay, and, and this no doubt foreshadowed his work upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The Greek phrase, I shall be perfected, it means to complete or to make perfect by reaching the intended goal. Jesus would accomplish his ultimate goal on the third day. His ultimate goal was to become the savior of the world through laying down his life for us upon the cross and then three days later rising again from the dead. Hebrews chapter 5 speaks of how though Jesus was a son, yet he learned obedience, uh, being obedient even to the point of death, the scriptures talk about. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, okay, that same exact Greek word that's used in our text this morning, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus said, nevertheless, I must journey. Jesus was on a mission given to him by his Father and was operating upon a divine timeline. He knew what he had to do and he knew what must be done. Jesus knew that it was all part of the Father's plan that Jesus would be rejected by the Jews and that he would die upon the cross of Calvary. When Jesus mentions prophets not perishing outside of Jerusalem, it isn't. it is very likely uh, that Jesus wasn't specifically referring to the city itself as if all prophets must die within the city limits. Throughout the Bible, the city of Jerusalem was used symbolically to speak of the Jewish nation as a whole. Jerusalem was the city of God. It was the largest city in the nation of Israel, and it was the center for their religious worship. And it's more than likely that Jesus is alluding to the fact that the Jews, by and large, had routinely rejected the prophets and messengers God sent to them, even killing many of them. Earlier in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was pronouncing his woes upon the lawyers, he mentioned, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. He continues and he says, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation generation. It is clear that Jesus is referring to the people in the current generation when speaking about their attack upon God's prophets and God's messengers. The culmination of their rejection and their persecution of the prophets and messengers God sent to them would be the rejection of their very own Messiah. Jesus knew he wasn't going to die at the hands of Herod Antipas. He knew that it would be the Jewish people that he was sent to that would ultimately reject him and cry out for his crucifixion. You see, God's redemption plan for all of humanity from the very beginning was always to have Jesus come to this earth and be rejected and die upon the cross for the sins of all humanity. Peter said the following regarding God's plan when speaking to all that were gathered together at the temple on the day of Pentecost. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put 
to death. You see, his rejection, his death, were all determined by the Lord in his foreknowledge. God knew this is the way it would all work out. And that is why Revelation describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, before the universe was created, before time existed, before man was created, God knew that we would sin. He knew that we would rebel against him as our creator. And in the wisdom and love of God in eternity, he predetermined a plan so that we could receive a free gift of salvation. In eternity, God planned for the Son of God to step into history to provide the ultimate sacrifice. The sinless Son of God would suffer sin's penalty of death. He would be raised from the dead, thus providing a way of salvation. And there was nothing That was going to keep Jesus from fulfilling the plan God had put together from the very foundation of the world. And when we consider the fact that God had a plan for Jesus and that God was going to see to it that his plan was fulfilled in and through Jesus, it ought to bring to us great comfort, knowing that the same Lord also declares how he has plans for each of us. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 states, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's plans for us are not for evil, but for good. Romans 8 states, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined and to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. All things work out for good, even what the enemy intends for evil. The Lord can turn it toward our good. God knows who are His. And He has predestined us to be conformed in the image of His Son. He has called us, justified us, and glorified us. God has numbered our days. They are all laid out before Him. David writes in Psalm 139 of the Lord, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before we were even born, God had a plan for us, a work that he would do in us and through us. Ephesians states that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God indeed has a plan for each of our lives, and he will be faithful to complete that plan. Philippians states how we could be confident of this very thing. That we could be confident that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Church family, take comfort and be encouraged. God's plan for you will come to pass. He will complete the work that he began in you. Well, let's continue in our text. We'll take a look at our next verse, verse 34. Jesus considers the city of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, and he shares the following lament. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. 
After speaking of his mission to go to Jerusalem and to fulfill the Father's great redemption plan, Jesus turns his thoughts towards Jerusalem. And here we see that Jesus is once again referring to the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish nation. They are the ones who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to them. Over and over again, God sent prophets to speak his message to his people. And over and over again, the people rejected those messengers and they killed them. They stoned them. Stoning was the mosaic punishment for blasphemy. Instead of listening to God's message through his prophets, they denied the Lord and they claimed the prophets that he sent were liars and that they spoke blasphemous, false messages deserving of death. You see, when Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he really is speaking a a lament of great anguish. Jesus was grieved in his heart when he considered how the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had treated God's chosen prophets. The nation was filled with unbelief and rebellion. His heart was broken. And and some may think that Jesus would be angry with the Jews for their unbelief and rebellion. They had been given so many chances. God had been so gracious towards them, and yet they still fought against God. They were still stiff-necked, resisting God, resisting the work of His Spirit. We might think that way because that's how we are. We are not long-suffering and patient like the Lord. But that was not the case for Jesus, okay? He was not like you and I, maybe. Knowing what they had done, And even knowing what they would do did not keep Jesus from continuing to love them, continuing to have compassion towards them. Jesus greatly longed to call them to himself, to protect them, to nurture them, to provide for them, to care for them like a hen cares for and looks after her chicks. And while I'm sure Jesus was grieved over their sin and rebellion, over the way they treated God's people, we get the sense from this lament, that he was even more grieved by the fact that they would not let him love them and protect them as he so desired. He so desperately longed to gather them to himself, to bring them under the protection and provision of his own wings, even while they were in the midst of rebellion and were opposing God. It reminds me of the wonderful truth we read of in Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yep. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for us is not based upon our obedience and our ability to do what is right, to live a holy life. It's based upon his nature. Uh, God loves us because he is love. He loves us in spite of us. He showed his great love for us in sending his son to die for us while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were still living in rebellion toward him. So many of us have it so wrong, thinking that we need to earn God's love or that we can you know, merit it somehow or some way, that God only loves us if we do the right thing and we say the right thing and we think the right thing, that if we sin, you know, God's love for us somehow disappears and it's no longer there. You guys, that simply is not the truth. God loves us unconditionally. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, First John chapter 4 says, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Though Jesus loved them so much, they were not willing to receive his love. They were not willing to allow him to take them in under his wings. They rejected and spurned his love for them. And this reminds me of another very important truth, one that can almost be a counterbalance to a previous point we've already made. Love demands a choice. God does not force us to love him. He does not make us receive his love and submit to his plan. God has given each of us a free will. We have been given the power to choose because love demands a choice. How can you really love someone or something if there is no other option? You can't. The existence of love demands a choice. God chooses to love us regardless of whether or not we receive his love. But just because God loves us does not mean that we will all be saved. We must choose to yield our lives to the Lord. We must choose to receive His gracious offer of salvation. We must choose to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ and His victory over sin and death. We must choose to reciprocate God's love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John writes, We love Him because He first loved us. If we do not respond to God's love, if we do not respond to his gospel message, he will not force himself upon us. He will not force his will over us. God will allow us to remain in opposition to him, even though he loves us more than we could ever imagine and desires for us to turn from our sins, to come to him. He will not make us love him. My hope for us all is that we will have all responded to God's love. That we will all have received God's love through His Son. That we all have yielded our lives to Jesus. This lament, it shows us that God is not as brokenhearted over our sin as He is with our unwillingness to come to Him and allow Him to lavish His love upon us. And, and I want to ask this question just... I don't know, maybe this applies to someone here today or maybe more than just a few of us. But where are you at in your relationship with the Lord? Are you allowing Him those opportunities to love on you? Are you letting Him wrap His arms around you and protect you, provide for you, nurture and care for you and whatever it is that you're going through? Sometimes I think we, we, we get into tough, tough times, difficulties, and we take it upon ourselves and we're going to figure out a way when God's just saying, just come to me. I just want to wrap my arms around you and I want to care for you and I want to love on you. And we're like, no, I, I got it, God. I, I'll take care of it. And he's like, no, you don't. Just come here and let me, wrap, let me take you in under my wing here. I hope that we are allowing God to lavish his love on us. Okay, I hope God's heart is not broken over our unwillingness to let him love us like only he can. Let's look at this last verse. We'll wrap up our study. Verse 35, it says, See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. Jesus wanted to gather them to himself as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings because he knew of the danger that they were facing. The Pharisees came to Jesus and tried to insinuate that Jesus was in danger, that Herod was after him, wanted to kill him. But the truth of the matter was that Jerusalem was the one in real danger. Jesus knew what would come within the next 40 years. He knew the danger they were in and he longed to protect them, but they were not willing. And so because they were not willing, because they rejected their Messiah, they would be left to their own demise. Now when it says your house, okay, it could be referring to a few different things. It could be referring to all of these things. It could be referring to the Jewish nation. The house of Israel refers to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish nation and people. It could be referring to the city as a whole, or even more specifically, it could be referring to the temple within the city. The word desolate can actually be used in various contexts to describe both people and places, and so it would fit with these various possibilities. If the house speaks of the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, okay, this word speaks of being all alone. It speaks of being deprived of the aid and protection of others, especially of friends, acquaintances, and family. This would be an accurate description of the Jewish nation having rejected their very own Messiah and having been left without any other hope of help. If the house speaks of the city itself, it could be that Jesus is speaking prophetically about the coming destruction of the city and how it will be deserted and uninhabited by the Jews. For in the year 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was taken when the Roman, arm, when the Roman army led by Titus Vespasian laid siege to the city and eventually destroyed it. If the house speaks of the temple, it could very well be speaking about the same future destruction that the city experienced. For during the siege of Jerusalem, not only was the city destroyed, but also the temple. It could be that this world, this word is meant to describe the emptiness of the temple. How God would no longer reside in the temple because it too would be destroyed. Well, which one is it? I'm not sure. It could be all three of them. Um, it fits, okay? After describing Jerusalem's house as desolate, Jesus assured them they would not see him again until the time they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this was a quote from the Old Testament book of Psalms. In Psalm 118, the psalmist writes of events that will take place during what's called uh, the day of the Lord, okay? Um, when all the nations will be gathered around Israel to destroy it, but God will intervene and he will supernaturally save the nation of Israel. And in response to God's work, the people say, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who who comes in the name of the Lord. And so some you know, may read this and think that perhaps Jesus is referring to the triumphal entry when he quotes from Psalm 118 because the people did shout this phrase as Jesus entered the city on that Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday. It could be that this was partially fulfilled uh, on the triumphal entry, but we know that it was not completely fulfilled, okay, and that the ultimate interpretation is speaking of Jesus' second coming on the day of the Lord. We know this, too, not just because of what it says in the Old Testament in Psalm 118, where it's originally quoted from, but we, all know that, we also know this because Jesus is recorded in Matthew's gospel as saying this same exact lament in chapter 23 
after he had already entered the city upon the back of a donkey, meaning that its ultimate fulfillment must still be looking further down the road. Jesus spoke this exact same lament just prior to chapter 24. At the very tail end of 23, he speaks in uh, verses 37 through 39, the same exact text that we're reading from in our text here in Luke chapter 13. Okay, and then he immediately goes into chapter 24 where he gives what many refer to as his Olivet Discourse. And it's during his Olivet Discourse that he primarily spoke of the signs of his coming and the end of the age. And so we can safely conclude that what Jesus is saying here about the Jews calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is something that will take place at Jesus' second coming and the day of the Lord. You see, God is not done with the nation of Israel. He still has a plan for them. He still desires to do a work in and through them, and he will complete that work one day. There are some people out there that try to say God's done with Israel, or the the church has replaced Israel, okay? And they call it replacement theology. I just call it hogwash, okay? Um, read chat Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has a plan for the nation of Israel, okay? And he will complete that plan just like he will complete the plan that he has for each and every one of us. But for us, I think the, the sacred truth, as we've kind of looked at this scare tactic and some just very foundational truths that we were able to pull out from our text here, I think the truth we want to pull out of this is the reminder that Jesus is indeed coming back one day. He is coming back for us. Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Church family, Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's been working on it for the last 2,000 years, and it is going to be glorious, all right? Jesus is coming back, and I believe it could be very soon, okay? Soon and very soon, okay? And I do know, okay, I'm not one to make assessments on days or anything like that. Uh, I don't think that's a good practice, okay, Uh, to try and uh, prophesy days, Uh, and weeks and times that we don't know. But I do know this for certain, that today is one day closer to the day than yesterday was. And each passing day, we are getting closer and closer and closer to the glorious return of our Lord and Savior. And my hope and my prayer is that we are all ready for that day, that we are living our lives in great anticipation for His return, and that we will live with the expectation that his return could come at any time, that it could come even today. Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) I know that I think that would be awesome. (laughs) Uh, What a glorious day that will be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity we have just to be reminded of your glorious plan, uh, your redemption plan that you set in motion before time even began, Lord. Uh, Not only your great redemption plan for us, but your plan for each of us individually, Lord. 
We know that you've began a, a great work in us, and we know the promise of your scriptures that says that you will complete that work that you began in us. And so, Lord, we are here today, Lord, just asking you to continue that work, continue to mold and shape us, continue to chisel away those rough edges, mold and shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray, I pray that everybody here has responded to your great love, that they've yielded their life to you, And Lord, I pray that we are living with the hope and the anticipation and expectation that your return is soon. Maranatha, we pray, come quickly, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.